It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast. This week we are treating you to a break from Brexit. Um, well, I, I know, Stephen, you're upset because you, you love... Well, you don't love Brexit, but you love the European referendum. I've got massive religion on it now. Yeah, uh, I, me too, but we'll come back to it another week. We have two exciting special guests this week. So Laura McInerney, the editor of Schools Week, coming to talk to us about the Academy's plan, and our regular writer Ian Leslie to talk about the US elections. So normal domestic service will be resumed next week, but for now, enjoy. We're joined by Laura McInerney, editor of Schools Week, to talk about, well, academisation, her FOI battle and what Michael Gove is really like. Uh, That's more of a scary one. We'll come to that later. Um, Laura, welcome to the podcast. I want, first of all, to get your take on the big measure announced in the budget, which was the idea that all primary and secondary schools by, I think it's what's 2018 or 2022, have got to be in the process of becoming an academy, definitely thinking about becoming an academy. Is it going to happen and should it happen? So the policy is that by 2020, every school has to have a plan in place to become an academy by 2022. And if it doesn't, George Osborne says he's going to pass a law which will give him radical new powers to make you do it. Now that's slightly strange as a timetable because 2020 is when we would expect there to be an election. 2022 is some time after that. So you'd think if you were really serious about this, you would probably make that timetable a little bit Uh, further forwards. In fact, what he's doing is pushing it quite far down the line. Now, some people say that's because what George Osborne and Nicky Morgan together are trying to do is scare schools into voluntarily becoming academies. So instead of a mass forced academisation in some distant future, everyone will voluntarily do it between now and then. Some councils are already saying, okay, we're on to that. We're going to look at setting up academies for all of our schools. Others, like Birmingham, have said absolutely not and passed motions to say this is a terrible thing. So my question is about academies. If, if it's so great being an academy, you'd sort of presume that everyone would have been hopping on that train already. Or is there just some logistical or financial thing that's been holding back schools from academisation? Or is there a fundamental philosophical problem that some people have with the idea? All of those are true. So there's some philosophical reasons why people would rather be with local councils to do with the way that accountability works and having local councillors be in on that process. There are financial implications as well to becoming an academy. And so just so everyone's clear, academies are schools that are looked after by charitable trusts. And there just haven't been enough charitable trusts around ready to take schools in. 
what the government wants schools to do is create their own charitable trust in a group. But if you're a head teacher and you're quite happy running your school, the likelihood that you're going to get five of your friends together and pick one of those friends to be your new charitable trust overlord and suddenly you've promoted somebody above you is unlikely and that's stopping it at the moment. It means lots of schools don't want to pick somebody else to be their new boss. And presumably it removes the idea that the local authorities supervise a lot of schools and therefore build up expertise across a range of schools, right? Rather than you're the person who's most telling you what to do, being someone who's got a kind of, a, almost like a commercial stake. I know it won't be at the moment for profit, but it, that they're, they're much closer to you than you'd imagine the local authority supervision would have been. So one of the arguments the government makes is that it would be much better if it wasn't somebody quite distant in a local government office who looks after loads of schools making those decisions. It would be much better if five primary schools got together, picked their favourite head teacher, and that head teacher made the decisions. So that is an argument the government are trying to make if if being not very clear in their message. Um, but at the same time, local government, although it sounds like they should have lots and lots of expertise, because of the budgetary cuts and the significant difficulties most of them find themselves in, their school improvement teams have been cut back and cut back and are about to be severely cut back due to budget constraints in the next three years. So to some extent, the argument that local government has got this body of expertise is really going to start to ebb away in the next few years. So you used to teach in a state school in East London, which I visited. There was a bucket in the corridor. There was one classroom that had a tree growing through the window I seem to remember um for that school you know is is this is this a helpful policy is this really is this the the thing that will help them so that school's already become an academy actually Ah, okay um and in part did so because it felt that one of the reasons why it had a building project cancelled was that it was part of Uh, the local council. The local council was Labour, so it wasn't particularly in favour of the government in 2010, back when the buildings were being cancelled. It subsequently became an academy and was able to apply on its own for funding and actually did become, it has got a a brand new building. So some people became academies really just for financial reasons and they were correct to do so for a few years. Um, That incentive has largely disappeared unfortunately now. Um, uh, can we move to um, free schools before we talk about your epic free schools battle? Uh, where does this idea about academisation leave them? So free schools are just a type of academy. Um, for about three or four years, everyone was busy talking about free schools. What they are is a type of new academy that was opened through a central government process. That just means anybody can apply to the Secretary of State and say, hey, give me a school, and they get given one. It's an academy, but it's also called a free school. Um, there's going to be 500 new ones over the next five years. Um, all of the policy direction is those will still go ahead. Whether we'll carry on calling them free schools or that name will disappear in the next few years is yet to be seen. What is the um, practical... So is there no practical difference between, say, Mossbourne, where there was no predecessor school on site, and uh, the West London Free School, parking for a the argument about whether or not one of them is a more effective school? Is there any difference, or is it just a a weird form of words and gets people excited. There is quite a big difference. So Mossbourne Academy was still done in conjunction with the local authority. It might not have necessarily been um, so to everybody's taste. For anybody who doesn't know, so this is a school in Hackney, right, which used to be, Michael Wilshire, who was the head of Ofsted, previously was its headmaster, right, and he was very much like, Mr, I make everyone wear a tie and do up their shoelaces, and that's why it was kind of held up as this big example. West London Free School is the one set up by Toby Young, who I'm sure many of our listeners will have shouted at when he's been on television but um sorry I just wanted to give that kind of context for people yeah uh, that's exactly right that's 100% correct 
and then one is opened a lot earlier than the other. So Mossbourne Academy was opened in the mid-2000s as part of the Blair uh, education reforms around academies, which are quite different than, than the current set of free schools. And the biggest difference is Hackney Council was involved in Labour's version of this. Even though the school was set up independent of the council, they still had to be involved. What free schools did in 2010 was just took local people, local councils, right out of the picture. So Toby Young got to have chats with Michael Gove, got to go in and be interviewed by civil servants in the Department for Education, and whether the local council wanted that school or not, whether there was any support or not, it was going to open. That's the biggest difference. And I think it's fair to say that the West London Free School is not a, perhaps one that free school advocates would kind of hold up as a an exemplar, right? It's had a, quite a few problems. It had a number of head teachers. It's done okay in its inspections and it's not yet had any results. So it would be unfair to say that um, it's a problematic school. It's not. But it did have uh, significant run-ins with its first few head teachers, much, I think, to Toby Young's dismay, who had thought everything was going to be perfect. Oh, poor old Toby. Well, it's a moment of sympathy for Toby Young on the New States podcast. Don't get used to it. Um, Stephen, you went to a school. I did indeed go to a school. Tell me about your experience because you've only uh, the only mention I've ever had about your school. You went to a school in London, right? Yeah. And in Tower Hamlets. Yeah. Is the idea of like new Labour politicians kind of coming around and kind of telling you all well, you had to become new Labour politicians? Yeah. So I mean, so I went to Morpeth Secondary School, which in 1997 was falling down and a bit of a sink school, and uh, by 2007 was very much not. And obviously, it's commutable from Westminster, so it was for a while. There's there's a line in the RE department that the head of department was very bitter about, where when the Queen came to visit, they deep cleaned right up until where the RE department started. And even now when you visit, obviously the bit where they've deep cleaned has got dirty again, but it's getting dirty at a slower rate than the the non-queen cleaned bit of the the school. But Morpeth actually, and weirdly the, the head teacher now, now advises the Welsh Government on literacy or something, but weirdly Morpeth was never an academy. It was it benefited from excellence in cities funding. It's still not an academy now because why would you become an academy if you're already outstanding? The whole point was always decided and you could use it to drive up. It feels a, What I don't really understand about this latest policy is it feels a bit like going, oh, I've noticed schools in London do better than schools in North Wales. So what we're going to do is we're going to rebrand schools in North Wales as being in London. I don't really get even what the thinking behind the latest thing is. But excellence in cities was different because, yeah, it, it wasn't about taking over the, the school. It was about this this golden thread of school reform, which is decided if you have a super head, then, then everything else follows through organically from that. So this is one of my kind of miniature hobby horses, probably caused by too many people being mean about the fact that all journalists went to private school. And I did, in fact, go to private school. My mum taught at the school that I went to. And the difference between, I think there is a is another educational divide that we don't talk about enough. I think there is definitely a massive problem with the over-representation of people from private school and public life, but also about the difference between schools in London and schools in the rest of the country and the fact that state schools in London... I mean, Islington, for example, has its, its, currently, its council-run schools are better currently than its academies, I'm right in thinking. Possibly. I mean, it's it's complicated because academies at one time were the failing schools and then they were they became academies to try and help them. Then from 2010, outstanding and good schools could voluntarily become academies and some in some places did and in other councils they didn't. So you can end up with these really weird statistics. But it's absolutely correct that London is very unusual, quite strange, and how this impacts the rest of the country is, is quite different. And all of the academies and all of the free schools you hear about typically – 
are in London and it gives us this very weird situation. Well, I think that's something, I mean, uh, I know Chris Cook back when he was at the FT would write about assorted mating, about the idea that teachers often like to marry other teachers and they like to marry lawyers or dentists or doctors and it's, it's easier in big cities to find, a, you know, to sustain a jeweller in a household like that. I talked to somebody who's doing Teach First this year actually, this coming year, and she says she's very keen to go and teach in a school in the South Coast because they have absolutely no problem with Teach First, you know, which is a scheme set up to get graduates into teaching, fast track them. They've got no problem with filling vacancies in London, but actually it's, there's a real reluctance by people on, on those kind of schemes to go to what they see as kind of the wilds of anywhere outside the M25. But is there anything that can be done about that, Laura? Like, is, are, is anyone trying to solve that problem of the disparity between schools in London and elsewhere? Absolutely. And the government would argue that one of the best things about the academy system is that it means charitable trusts that are very successful in one place can start to branch out and look after schools in other areas. So for instance, you're saying Islington Council are doing really well with their schools. Well, actually, maybe they should be helping schools nearby in another local authority, which is actually struggling. So let's take ARC, who are the charity that everybody talks about because they've done very well with some schools in London. Well, they're now also reaching out into Portsmouth and they've started taking is Portsmouth. They've started taking on schools in Portsmouth and developing capacity there, and the same in Birmingham. So the argument is that in the past, if you had really good local councils, that was fab for the schools in that area. But you could have a nearby area where which was hopeless, and because the local council had a monopoly over the schools, the argument goes, then you were just a bit stuffed if you lived there because the local council in the next town couldn't come in and help you. Whereas academies don't have that geographical problem. Yeah, Arcus so um, ready to expand that I was in Uganda two weeks ago and they've got they've got schools in Uganda they've hooked up with an educational charity there um let's move on before we finish I know we talked for a long time but I really want to having been a a tiny part of this journey that you've been on for how long is it now four years nearly yeah so tell us what happened with your epic FOI battle about free schools. When did it start? Take us back to the very, very beginning. So it was the summer of 2012, just in the dying days of the Olympics. Um, Gangnam Style was, in fact, number one the day I put in uh, an FOI request. So that's a freedom of information request. It's a legal lo- It's a law that says that people can put in requests to the government for information. And it was the time when free schools were being opened. So people were applying to the government, asking to open a school, and were being told that they were being accepted or rejected. And And I asked to see the application forms and also the letters giving the reasons why they were accepted or rejected. Up until that point, if if people had been applying to open schools um, similar to Mossbourne in the past, all of the applications for Mossbourne, all of the decisions that were taken by Hackney back in the mid-2000s, all of that was public. It struck me in 2012, well, let's have a look at what's going on with free schools. Fortunately, the government uh, disagreed and they didn't feel that I should have that information. Okay, so so you submit the FOI requests, mm-hmm. they come back and say, computer says no, mm-hmm. or Michael Gove says no, the version of that. Then it goes to appeal, the information commissioner takes up the case. I went along to a court hearing, which was a challenge for me because I didn't get to use the internet all day. Um, yeah, what about my struggle, Laura? Um, but, but when, what happened then? So what was that next stage then? Because then... You know, the, the information commissioner was really quite on your side, right? You were still acting as a litigant in person at this point, basically. Sure. So the government said no. I went to an independent ombudsman called the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. They said, sorry, government, actually, this person should have the information the public needs to know about free schools. You're spending a billion pounds on them. Perhaps you could tell people what you're doing. Um, they then took me to court, which was a bit bizarre. As you say, we had to sit there all day. And the judge ruled 
very unusually that um, the Department for Education had said, if we have to give this information out, it will be such a burden and such a pain that it will stop us doing our job. And the judge, with no level of proof whatsoever, took their side and said, actually, you've asked for a bit too much, but if you ask for less information, then you probably should have it. And so I went away and I asked again, this was the summer of 2014, for um, a, a lesser part of information. Stephen, you're going to love this, right? So we had to sit there in court while they said to us, well, we've done an estimate of how long it would take it to open every file. And it was like a minute per file. Like even the New Statesman computers, which in some cases are a little bit elderly, like they would have opened files faster than they said. Maybe they have a lot of tabs open. <laughs> maybe that, I mean, when, when I turn Spotify on, on my computer, basically it, it grinds to a halt. So maybe... You know, what you're saying is you think people in the DfE shouldn't be able to listen to, I don't know, Wolf Alice. Yeah, I, I'm confident in saying I don't think people in the in the DfE... I think they should have to delete everything in their downloads folder and then maybe start <laughs> again when they've got a bit more RAM. Um, but then, so you went back and then asked what to so say just for the ones, for the schools that had been accepted, is it then? So um, they voluntarily released the information about the schools that had been accepted. And I said, can I just see the decisions for the schools that were turned down? I would like to know on what basis you let Toby Young's school open, but some head teachers who've grouped together in the same area were turned down. That would be helpful to see the reasons why um, and they came back and said no we, we're still not going to play and then we went to appeal again and the ICO ruled in my favour again and then the department said hey let's go to court again this is a lot of fun and um, so we were actually due to go this month April the 12th and then in on a weird Friday afternoon in February the Department for Education pulled out and said actually after three and a half years we've decided you can have the letters but then the letters arrive yes they did they arrived in six envelopes which had weird slits all up the side of them and so most of them had been shredded in the envelopes had been shredded in the post and they arrived in these weird plastic bags and I didn't know if I had all of them because the department had lost 41 letters so over the three and a half years the department then said they'd lost 41 of them and by the time they arrived I couldn't work out which 41 were missing were they supposed to be missing and so we've had to go through the rigmarole of actually going to the department and getting them from them by hand. I love it. Everything about this story I really love because it makes me think that there can't be some kind of like JFK assassination style conspiracy <laughs> happening in the British government because just someone would forget to delete something, someone would accidentally send something, some, you know, it's just the kind of level of kind of not, you know, of, of a bureaucratic incompetence seems sufficiently high to reassure me. There was a brilliant moment um, around... 2015 when the, the ICO said to the department finally oh can we see all of these letters that we want to have a look and check you know are they really going to be so inflammatory that the world will fall apart if we pass them out which was what the department were, were basically claiming and um, it took about four months because the department for education were unable to even send them electronically and they kept sending them on CDs and then the CDs weren't working and they had to be printed out so yeah it does CDs, make you that worry you back, doesn't it I mean surely get someone get the DFA a USB stick please at this point so what's um obviously you've got this fairly huge cache of of letters and i imagine you haven't been able to go through but what what are they so keen to hide or is it just that obviously this government really hates foi in general um so is it kind of reflexive secrecy or you know is, is there something sinister going on in there 
Sure, the letters don't seem to be so inflammatory that I think it was worth taking me trying to take the court twice. Certainly, that seems like a bit of waste of money looking at them. And um, what it does reveal is that the process by which people have applied to open these free schools, which are academies, has been very incoherent. So some people were told your petition only had 200 people in, it should have had another 100. Someone else had 500 and then they were told 500 wasn't good enough. And yet there are some people who opened schools where when you look at their application forms, they didn't even have a petition in them. So it does seem as if people who maybe had connections were in certain marginal constituencies might have had an easier time of it. And we've known this for some time because the National Audit Office about three years ago tried to get to the bottom of who was opening schools. And what they found out was that 17% of applicants that had very low scores actually still got to open their school. And about 20% of people with very high scores didn't get to open their school. And what we've still not got, because we don't have all of the information because of that judgment in 2014, is to figure out exactly who was allowed through and who wasn't. But it does seem like it was incoherent, inconsistent, and that potentially there was some favouritism going on. But that's also a reflection, presumably, of how quickly they moved that policy through, right? Because there were a lot... It's not a completely partisan point. There were... Peter Hyman, who used to work for Tony Blair, open one. It wasn't purely only a Conservative policy and everyone in Labour thought free schools were like the devil... But they did still pass, even though they probably could have built a much more consensual process, they did, did treat it quite partisanly and force it through quite quickly. Do you think some of it is a reflection of just going like, get it, get them open, get them open, oh, go, com- go, go? Completely. I mean, the civil servants were in a completely baffling situation where they're told you've got to open school. Here's Toby Young, he wants to open a school, let's make that happen in a year. It never happened before. No one really knew what they were doing. And frankly, the lost 41 letters, I do believe, were not lost because anybody was trying trying to hide things I think they just they didn't have proper filing systems and that's not okay and that's one of the reasons why this current academies policy is upsetting people so much because it's been hidden it doesn't look as if it's been done competently the transparency isn't there for how academy decisions are being made either so you're now going to have 16,000 schools suddenly become different types of charitable trust with different people in charge. The decisions will be made completely behind closed doors. And do we trust the department that when it was trying to open a couple of hundred schools messed it up so badly because they were moving so quickly at the behest of politicians? If once again, the civil servants are told, let's make 16,000 schools brand new entities and you've got to do it in three years. You know, no, no one can do that without a lot of things going wrong. When you started that process as well, you were a PhD student in Missouri. Now you're the editor of a school's trade magazine. Do you ever phone up people who are now quite scared because they might have offended you when you were in your previous incarnation and now <laughs> you're a journalist and therefore can be mean to them? It's true. So I'd been a teacher for six years. I was in the middle of a field in Missouri doing my PhD when I asked for all of this. And it would have been much better probably for everybody involved if they'd just given me the information then. I could have written a PhD that probably nobody had any idea of. And maybe what this teaches people is there's that line in the musical Les Mis where he says, never kick a dog because it's just a pup. You better run for cover when the pup grows up. And I think perhaps there's something true in this, that um, if government departments keep treating people meanly about their FOIs, they need to think about what will happen three years later when they finally get that information and the person is now much more aggrieved and angry because they've been taken to court. Stephen, would you like to end with a line from Les that sums up your feelings about this current government? I mean, I actually... The the only song I know from Les is... um, well enough to sing is look down which <laughs> I mean I suppose is appropriate in some ways I do sometimes worry that I will die before the current government is out of office 
Well, that's kind of like my experience of watching Les Mis, where I was like, oh, it's Russell... Well, the problem is Russell Grant, but I don't mean that, do I? I mean Russell Crowe. Is Russell Crowe still going? He still can't sing. This is worse than Pierce Brosnan in Mamma Mia. The problem with basically all Andrew Lloyd Webber's is he writes one good song, which opens the the musical, apart from Joseph and the Technicolor, Coloured Dreamcoat, which is because those are all bangers. Yeah, but he <laughs> mostly so Phantom of the Opera, the kind of Phantom, that bit's good, and then it's just da, all da, 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 from da. there. Am I going to have to point out that Andrew Lloyd Webber didn't write Les Mis? Did he not? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wow, okay. Stephen's mind is whole is yeah, mine, that, mine. transparency. Look at that. That's what information and yeah. learning does. Wow, blimey! You had to really reappraise. Who did write Lemis? Alan Bublil and Michael Schomburg. But yeah. your point still stands because when I talked to um, the guys who wrote uh, Matilda, you know, uh, Tim Minchin's uh, musical, the lyricist for that said, "Look, the problem with musicals is basically right. People write two good songs and then they just put in filler, and we decided not to do that." So I think that is a, 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 a reasonable criticism of musicals, even if it turns out that you were not a world expert on Andrew Lloyd Webber, as I had always been led to believe. Oh, well. But for the moment, we'll say thank you very much for joining us, Laura. We hope you come back sometime. If um, readers want to get in touch, uh, Laura is Miss underscore McInerney. I'm guessing they probably aren't going to be able to spell that because no one in the history of your life has been able to. You can always go through uh, me. I'm at, at Helen Lewis or at Stephen KB. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the Pop Culture Podcast from the New Statesman. Seriously. If you secretly care more about comics than Jeremy Corbyn, this is the podcast for you. You can find all our episodes at newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. And now we are joined by our regular writer, Ian Leslie, also the author of Curious and Born Liars, to talk about the US election. Um, Ian, you're, you're kind of, I think you're the first person who's who's wanted to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, it all sounds like you're having such fun, and I, so I thought I'd come and uh, spoil it. Down to the podcast catacomb, as yeah. Stephen calls it. <laughs> it's very glamorous here. Yep, yep. We've got um, an odd smell. We've got Some big books. name journalist Helen Lewis. We've got... It's all here. Um, we, we, we're kind of talking at an interesting time, because it's the... It's the week of the New York primary, which um, obviously being the place where a lot of journalists live, assumed a kind of more interesting quality because people could go and do Vox Pops simply by walking down the street or on their way to work. Um, So it was a resounding win for Hillary Clinton. And it also seemed to be the moment where we all had to accept that Donald Trump has clinched it, right? Um, Well, yeah. I'll let our guest go first. uh, (laughs) Stephen will will know the answer in in more detail when it comes to sort of the politics of the convention, but... It certainly seemed that he, well, he had lost uh, momentum. Um, he didn't seem to be doing as well as he thought. And there were, so there's been increasing chatter around him uh, not getting to to this magic one, two, three, seven number of delegates he needs. And, and therefore, you know, Cruz would happen or Paul Ryan or Mick Romney would be drafted at the last minute. That is now kind of less likely than it was because he won so, he's won so convincingly in, in New York. Um, he's still not likely, I think, uh, to cross that threshold, but he's within spitting distance and, uh, you know, he can probably spit quite a long way. Um, uh, and probably he will tell us all about how far he can spit at some point. And, he's got an enormous, he, but he's renowned for he's spitting. Renowned, he's renowned, he's a world-class Huge spitter. tongue. Um, uh, and so he, he might, you know, there's, there's now a kind of, I would say, you know, sort of 65, 70% chance that he will uh, actually 
get the nomination. So I was talking to a, a journalist who works in America, and and they were looking forward to not well looking forward in very much only one sense of the word to the Republican National Convention, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. And the venue that it's happening in is really it's really downtown in the middle of a very big, very diverse city, and. That is going to be, I mean, it's going to be hot as well. So it is all the conditions for that to be an extraordinary, possibly quite violent uh, end to the Republican race. I mean, my feeling is it's almost more dangerous if Donald Trump doesn't win the nomination. I don't know how you feel about this, Stephen, in the terms of just the the safety of the people of Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if I were a Cleveland resident, I would be crossing everything, hoping that Donald Trump will get over the line. Because what New York means and the scale of his victory there means is not that he is necessarily inevitable but basically if Donald Trump does not become the nominee it will be because he has finished maybe a hundred votes short of the threshold uh, to achieve the nomination and he will have lost it on the second or third or fourth round due to a backroom deal he is not very well organized so a lot of the people who are his delegates who've been selected by public votes once you win a public vote you then need to make sure that your delegates like you so Bernie Sanders delegates are the most Bernie bro of Bernie bros. Hillary Clinton's uh, delegates are the people who last time, you remember there were some people saying they wouldn't vote for Obama. They are they are those people because you need your delegates to be die in a ditch for you. Trump, Some of Trump's delegates are probably actually supporters of Ted Cruz because he's been so badly organised that they've won in one state. They've The kind of Trump circus has moved on and Cruz's people have come in and they've made sure that... Donald Trump's, you know, 100 or how many it was from South Carolina delegates, they are actually all Cruz supporters. So on that second round, uh, Trump is in a lot of danger. However, we do know he has very vocal, sometimes quite violent, that he himself, as Hillary Clinton has has noted, is encouraging and actively, um, uh, in you know, egging them on in this violence. Then if he doesn't get it, yeah, there, there almost certainly will be will be what well, also surely this tra- teaches once again is that single transferable vote is a work of evil <laughs> let's get into that whole debate again that'd be really fascinating <laughs> it's time for av plus people will come around to it in the end i tell you um which we still have an entry for in our style guide the dream will never no, die it will never die we keep that flame alive um i was almost more interested in the result for, for clinton because she won convincingly in among black men among black women among latinos uh, among white women the only uh, group that was more interested in in Bernie in sort of crude demographic terms was was white men. Uh, Stephen, I was I was shocked. I was shocked by that. Um, yeah, I mean, it is it is a more extreme version of the picture we've seen, with the partial exception of Michigan, where he was merely clobbered as opposed to crushed among black voters, and it, it, and he has done badly among women, with the exception of New Hampshire and Vermont, which are obviously his home state and his neighbouring state. And it underlined why he, like Bill Bradley before him, like Gary Hart, like all of these can- these demographically limited candidates uh, for the Democratic nomination, you cannot win with only the votes of white liberals and college graduates, which is basically all he's appealed to. I mean, to have a slight kvetch about the media coverage of, Sa- of Sanders, far from being done over by the mainstream media, it is impossible to imagine if every every American cycle, a black candidate only got the votes of black men and black graduates, then being given the level of adulatory coverage, this nonsense about his momentum. He didn't have momentum. He had eight states which were demographically set up 
entirely for him. There is no way a black candidate would ever receive the level of, oh, maybe he could possibly win when he couldn't. Yeah, there has never been a point when he has had the reach necessary to win. It's ridiculous. I know. It's, it's, maybe the, the analogy is actually sort of Jesse Jackson in um, 88. You know, he's, yeah. he's done very well with, uh, with his community, you know, white yeah. men. <laughs> yeah. um, but he can't kind of cross over in, in, into the mainstream. He must have crushed in Park Slope, though. Yeah. You, you would have thought there were parts of Brooklyn that... People with big beards and like and an, an artisan coffee. And, yeah, yeah it mean, must have been yeah. really loving, feeling the burn. The, I, but what, the one thing that I... from a, I guess this is casting you as senior black correspondent and me as senior woman correspondent. But the thing that I, it isn't happening is that I don't... My, what irritates me about is any kind of suggestion that women might vote for a candidate because she's a woman is like considered to be this kind of like crazy ladies thing. But there is an acceptance that, you know, Hispanic voters or black voters might want to vote for, you know, they might see a kind of, that's kind of seen as being a legitimate thing that for black voters to vote for Obama last time was kind of, well, that was an exciting thing. But there's such, there's such on the left, particularly, there's such despising of the idea that women might just vote for someone just because she's a woman. I don't know. It's true, although although even in the case of of um, way people talk about black voters, um, they often talk about them as uh, well. I don't know. I get the sense that they're talking about as a kind of they're voting for sentimental reasons, sort of kind of reasons of loyalty. Um, and there's a slight resistance to the idea that they've actually thought this through um, and would prefer one candidate to another. Or that you know, the, I mean, the one thing they always say about the Clintons is they went to you know they went to all the funerals, they went to the black churches, you know, they mm. work, you know, they worked went to community events for now decades, you know. Hillary Clinton has been, you know, turning up to things, basically, for a really long time now. Yeah, and I think, and you know, I stand by, and I, I feel I shill for this every time we talk about uh, Saunders, but, you know, the video he produced in the run-up to, I think it was, yeah, it was, I always forget which South Carolina, which Carolina goes first, but I think it was South Carolina, uh, that brilliant Black Lives Matter video he did, but... For the type of politics Sanders offers, race is very much an afterthought. It's like, oh, we'll fix this class stuff, and that will naturally lead to black empowerment. Whereas if you are a Southern Democrat, as the Clintons were originally, we kind of forget now they've become sort of New Yorkers in their kind of second political life. You know, black, black people are not an afterthought. They are your only path to victory. They are essential. She gave a brilliant speech at... I don't think Hillary is a particularly charismatic candidate, but it was a brilliant speech, and I urge you to watch in full in Harlem, in which he talked, among other things, about the way that Republicans have consistently talked about Obama as if he's not the real president. And I think she, the fact that she gets that is that the root for her appeal. And Ian's exactly right. That I've read an awful lot of and been asked an awful lot of times, well, why don't uh, uh, black voters back Bernie? As if the question is, well, why have black voters failed to back Bernie, not what has Hillary Clinton done right, or even what has Bernie Sanders done wrong, or, or even yeah. questioning what is Bernie Sanders offer yeah. to to that to any particular community. I think that's yeah. the thing, but that's the thing where I find it very difficult because I find it in slightly indivisible. From in my mind, they are he is merging into Jeremy Corbyn, and there is a certain kind of no war, but the class war feeling about both of them. I think, which is is something that if whether you're a woman from an or from a minority community, you find a, a slightly troubling thing that income inequality is seen as just this. Some people have rich jobs, some people have poor jobs. Well, actually, some people don't get considered for certain types of jobs, and some people have to work a second job alongside mm. their other job. Some people have an, an unpaid job that they do at night after their job, and and I, I guess that's what I, I I'm finding it very hard not to 
I mean, I, when I read about Bernie and about the, the things that he's saying about money in American politics and the kind of grotesqueries of that, I know that I agree with all of that. But I'm finding it hard not to project my slight irritation onto him from, I mean, from other things. So I think that comparison is slightly unfair to both Clinton and Corbyn, actually. I think partly I think it's unfair because I don't think there was a candidate from the centre-left or the right or Corbyn sceptics or whatever, you know, the artists formerly known as the moderates, um, they, they did not have a candidate of Hillary Clinton's quality level, which was partly the vacuum that Corbyn uh, was able to fill. Secondly, the only barrier, and I'd like to make it clear it is not a small barrier, but the only barrier to implementing Corbynism is getting 301 seats in the House of Commons once boundary changes come through. Whereas Sanders was not running on a po- is not running on a policy platform. You know, like this this is a guy who who you know whose idea of drone warfare is oh I will just do it like Obama, but I won't have as much collateral damage because of my political revolution, who, as far as I can tell, has never put any thought into how you get the 60 votes you need in the Senate to get universal health care. Something which, you know, I mean, like, Obamacare has problems. I mean, I'm a massive zealot for it when you consider what was there before. But it broke the back of the Democratic Congress, and it was really difficult to get it past the Republicans who can obstruct anything unless you can get to that magical 60 vote. There is, as far as I can tell, there is no... You know, Sanders' idea of politics is you vote for Sanders and this magically changes the rules of the US Constitution. I thought it was interesting in that interview that he did with, uh, I think it was the Washington Post editorial board, where they said, "Okay, so you want to break up the banks. What physically is the process by which you do that? What legislation do you bring? And that's why I think it's a really interesting reflection of a much broader trend in politics, that the skills you need to win an election to energise a movement are so different from the skills you need, particularly in a, in a, the ridiculous system that America has ended up with without you know not having so yeah. many different branches of government and needing supermajority to get things done. You, you know, the, the, I, it's really sad because no one will ever be able to win an election based on, on, on achievable promises. Well, I don't know, because I, I think Hillary Clinton will probably be the next president of the United States. So, you know, I, I think that the moderates are, are still... Uh, uh, you know, I think Angela Merkel has a very good shot of. So, so despite the, this kind of feeling that actually it's it's the uh, uh, the zealots and the, the kind of slightly more extreme sides of our politics that are winning through, I think that the slightly boring middle still has quite a lot of uh, of game to, to to give. But it finds it very hard. I mean, it's it's hard to be a defender of the boring middle, isn't it? It really <laughs> is. Yeah, it's not very exciting. Um, and. You know, the, the the Bernie Sanders interview, I think it was New York Daily News, actually, York that, Daily that, News, yeah. was extraordinary because the, it showed that he can answer the first question incredibly well. And by the way, I do have a lot of respect for him. I think he's an incredibly like, effective and disciplined politician and he's run a great campaign. But it was interesting that on the kind of second question, OK, you want to break up the backs, you know, how exactly? He just sort of didn't have an answer at all. I really enjoyed his one about the subway. Like, how do you pay to go on the subway? And he's like, hey, you got a token. And they're like, yeah, not since 2002. Which actually meant that there was quite a good... Did you see that sassy tweet that Hillary Clinton, uh, of her using the subway to get to vote on in yeah. the primary? That's another aspect. I guess you spend a bit of time on Twitter. I'm not I'm not judging. <laughs> but you do. that you are. <laughs> but I feel like American politicians have cracked social media without looking so, so embarrassingly like someone in their office has to tell them how to work the machine. Yeah, I mean, uh, American politics has always been uh, more closely aligned with the entertainment industry than, than it has in Britain. So, so they've always been better at the show, the pizzazz, the, being on TV. Uh, and, and now, yeah, social media, they tend to be a little bit better. And Hillary Clinton uh, is not a natural by any means, but even Hillary Clinton 
has her moments on Twitter when you think, yeah, that's really smart, very clever, very funny, very entertaining. You know, so she 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 has at least hired some people who who know. Yeah, and her Instagram that. game is on fleek. I mean, seriously, her Insta- Instagram <laughs> is really really good. Uh, but how um, how are you finding Jeremy Corbyn on Snapchat? I'm actually not on the Snapchat. Uh, wow. Okay, because I am on the Snapchat. I use all the filters, um, all the filters. I guess not I, the Bob Marley filter. I've heard that's racist. I, I'm just say. very, I'm very happy with the number of social media platforms I have now. I have Facebook, where I effectively brag about my life achievements. I have Twitter, where I brag about my the career achievements, article mm. achievements, and well, I have Instagram, where I take photos of bread, bread. And, uh, and, your, and your wife. And, and my wife, yeah. <laughs> and so basically, I don't really see what would I do on Snapchat. I, you know, I don't see what, what bragging would I do on that platform. But I think part of it, and the reason why I follow American elections... You could send photos of bread to yeah, your wife. It's true, I could. Uh, so obsessively is that um, it's a really good guide to the methods that will be used in British elections. Ed, yeah, the, you, you, in terms of the pattern of who wins and who loses, there is much more to learn, you know, Corbyn does not have very much to learn from Sanders. He probably has quite a lot than he could model from Syriza or Podemos or Delinka in terms of what to do and what not to do. But in terms of running a good digital campaign, you know, I was talking to one of the Conservatives digital people and they said, well, we've basically got now to a point in terms of what we're doing on the internet where I think we're probably about as good as where the Obama campaign were in 2008 and then now everyone working in digital comms in America would laugh at and go, really, you've done that? And I think one of the slightly, the, the big challenge for people in our job is that Facebook is not a regulated broadcast platform. I think there is a strong argument and it should do. I mean, one Labour strategist said to me, you know, by 2025 at the outside, Facebook will be as important a platform you know, the only thing more important than it in terms of deciding elections will be the BBC and it will have no re- no real regulation because why would the Tories want to do that? They have this massive cash advantage on there. And as you um, wrote in your piece about Zach, you know, it allows for absolute micro-targeting. I was yeah. really surprised when Twitter came to us and talked to, about advertising on there and you can advertise to people who are using a certain hashtag. So, for example, you can advertise only to people who are watching Question Time, for example. Yeah. Or, but the same thing happens with, you know, Facebook has an incredibly good profile of your age your job, uh, your income, your race, frankly, like your sexuality. It can tell all of those things about you. So you can do the kind of campaigns that Zach Goldsmith has not kind of really got away with invisibly on Facebook. Because I think the thing is, is like, so if Zach Goldsmith wins... He, I mean, obviously he will, yeah, I imagine he will survive being mayor, then I will write a strongly worded blog about why his campaign was bad and he should be ashamed of himself. However, I will at least know that's what happened. In, it is entirely conceivable in three election, mayoral elections from now, they'd be able to run exactly the same insidious, nasty dog whistle campaign with none of the negative effects. And I imagine he probably has lost the votes of some liberal minded conservatives in Kensington or wherever. Um, they will just be able to do that. That That is the future of of campaigns and and um and we won't have the same regulation we thankfully do on broadcasters where you have to do fairly anodyne mm, but that's articles. probably already yeah. what's happened in America with if you think about the huge support for Donald Trump from some corners yeah. of Reddit or 4chan for example and and the fact that there are big communities of people that and and we know frankly that you know Facebook can influence whether or not people vote if if, yeah. if Facebook sends you a prompt that does have a massive effect on Turner yeah, yeah. now in something like the the EU referendum suddenly even 10,000 under 25s turning out to vote would be would, would make a huge yeah, difference yeah no, that's really interesting and I, and I wonder if it does mean that politics becomes a bit fundamentally more un- unpredictable um, and that the rise of they're very different but but the rise of Corbyn uh, in the late part and then the rise of Trump 
um, are both connected in some way to, to, to social media. I mean, we sort of instinctively think that. I don't think anyone's shown that yet. But, um, and perhaps it, is, it makes uh, predicting who is going to do what and who's going to, who's going to turn out and vote, apart from anything else, you know, much more difficult than, than it used to be. So we'll get more of these kind of outlier events. Mm. It's kind of one in a thousand. Last question. Predictions. VP picks. Any predictions? Are you prepared to make predictions? Do you know, there's been so little chatter about VP picks, I haven't even thought about it. Apart from, obviously, Chris Christie, because he's, uh, you know, he's going to be Trump. Because his haunted eyes have <laughs> stared out from behind his uh, hostage video where he endorsed Trump. Exactly. I, I don't know if he's, like, uh, been hypnotised or if he's, like, a Manchurian candidate that's been sort of planted. And they'll just activate him. will sort him. of explode all over Trump on, on, on stage. Someone I was talking to at the weekend suggested that Elizabeth Warren would be an interesting pick for Hillary because she would be... The thing that all the people... The thing that the Bernie bros... I know we're not allowed to use that phrase, but I'm going to anyway. Say when you say, are you sure you just don't quite like him because he's an old white mm. man that you feel comfortable with that. Kind of go, no, 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 we would have backed Elizabeth Warren if she'd run. Well, there so, is actually... Um, public policy polling did do a poll where they put some random women women's names in and... Elizabeth Warren would do slightly worse than Sanders. I mean, we can tell partly because some of the people who are voting for um, uh, Sanders voted for Clinton over Obama. Clinton was to Obama's right, yeah, in two thousand and eight. Yeah, like obviously the bulk of Sanders supporters that is not true for, but there is a very insidious streak there. Yeah, so I I think it's a really interesting question about whether or not someone like Warren would then help recapture that kind of the 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 burn. So she brings she co-opts the burn. Um, but equally, well, I think it's interesting to think about the fact of, of the gender politics of that, about whether or not you think that anybody who's turned off by voting for a woman, actually adding another woman, you know, you could add hundreds more women by that point, you know, they're either in for it or they're not, or whether or not you think that actually having a male VP would be an important thing just to reassure people that, you know, if, if she's having her period, then someone will properly will be in charge. I, I think if, if she is... Um... If she's, I would say, if she's smart, of course she's smart. I mean, she didn't always make the right decisions, but but I politically, but I think that uh, she will ignore all the stuff about who's more electable and who who you know is going to swing what state and just pick somebody that she trusts, because I don't think there's really any evidence that the VP pick really makes a difference. Unless they're Sarah Palin rare. and you hand people a massive open Un- Yeah, exactly. Unless it's the, the, you send completely the wrong the wrong signal with it, and I'm not sure that she will feel that she trusts Elizabeth Warren. Um, I think Elizabeth Warren is too much of a potential rival. One more thing on the on, on the v, VP thing, um, which is that the, what if she picks a Republican? You know that that might be quite an interesting. If she's up against you know Trump, it's kind of smashing up the Republican Party. It might be the ultimate kind of like actually everyone's on our you know this is the establishment. Even if you're a Republican, you should vote for this ticket now because we can't have this man Trump. That's fa- I mean I I don't think it'll happen. It's kind of a fascinating idea but I, I not only because I, I i'm not sure she will feel that she things are so desperate that she needs it i feel i think if you feel if you're up against trump you've got to feel relatively confident that his appeal is so limited among women and certain uh, demographics and minorities that you probably wouldn't bother but also I, I i'm not sure if the republican party has still accepted that it has lost control yet i don't know whether or not it's finally had its dark night of the soul of you know we fed this tea party monster and this populism and this kind of birtherism and it, you know, no, but but one or two of them who are just, I mean, you know, Colin Powell joined Obama last time, last time around, two thousand eight. Um, so that she might be able to find, you know, a disaffected uh, Republican who who believes, you know, things have gone way too far, and and, and actually believes the party has gone Trump aside, has gone kind of too far to the right. But it is unlikely. Okay, final question: Who's your favourite West Wing character? Toby, Josh. I- I'm going to say Josh. So you can pick Donna if you want. 
In that case, I, I think... Or you can pick CJ. I do love CJ. Oh, CJ. Oh, CJ yeah. actually is quite fairly CJ. bad at her job. Sorry for that truth bomb, <laughs> but she is. I like the bit when at the end and they ask her what she's going to do to help Africa and she says Rhodes. I think that's quite... That's, that was a really she becomes thing. good at her Not job. Not Cecil Rhodes, we should say. <laughs> yeah. She becomes good at her job by then. I think actually in that case, if I can't also have Josh, I'm going to have... Have Will. Go on, just be good. Oh, yeah, just for that dark horse pick. Um, no, I think I'm going to go for Toby, actually. Yeah. Hang on a minute. No, you can't have... Oh, he had to. Yeah. yeah. Okay, in that case, can I have Leo? Why did I get to pick last? <laughs> you can stop. have Leo if you want, Leo. You No, in that case, I want... Go on, pick Hoynes. <laughs> I mean... You get Hoynes. Um, no, I'm, I'm sorry. We know we should... It's, it should be banned to be talking about the West Wing, which after all was now like 14 billion years ago. Um, but it... it, it, it it does make me happy. <laughs> it's my escapist television. You know, I really want someone to make a, a similar show about British TV in which there's an impeccably liberal person who inexplicably is allowed to do the things that they want to do and play chess games in their head. Um, but Ian, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Um, we hope thank you'll you. come back another time. But for the moment, thank you. Now it's time to go down the line to the lobby with George. Hi, Stephen. Hi, George. So the EU referendum campaign has really come to life this week, and we've had two defining interventions. The first was George Osborne's unveiling of the Treasury's report, estimating that Britain would be worse off by the equivalence of £4,300 per household by 2030 if the UK votes to leave. And Michael Gove's speech in which he accused the Remain campaign of treating voters like children and also confirmed that Vote Leave's position is that if the UK votes to leave, it should not seek continued membership of of the single market and it would seek to regain control of the UK's borders, Uh, It would not contribute to the, the EU budget, would seek to end the supremacy of EU law. But of course, that would also have a greater economic cost it would mean, crucially for Britain, the end of the single market in, in financial services. And so I think you've seen a contest developing between the Remain side, which is emphasising the economy, and Leave, which is emphasising sovereignty and immigration. Uh, they don't think they can win an argument on economic terrain. The best they hope for is to neutralise the economic arguments of the other side. But they think they can potentially win the contest by inviting voters to take back control of their country and to regain control of Britain's borders. Right. Um, but despite the fact the economy is traditionally the... Uh, has, has been the winning argument to be able to have on your side in basically every election since time immemorial, um, Remain aren't as confident as they would be were it a general election, are they? No, they're not. It is being... Um, Held um, midterm, uh, David Cameron has been prime minister now for more than six years. George Osborne has been chancellor for a long time. Both are less popular than they were, uh, and there's an enthusiasm gap they worry about. That those who want to vote to leave are uh, more motivated to turn out. Uh, it's older voters who we know uh, are reli- reliably turn out who are more anti-EU. It's younger voters who are less likely to turn out who are more pro-EU. So that demographic divide worries them. And there's always the risk with referendums that they become as a catch-all um, protest against the, the status quo. 
Um, most of those, they um, rely on a, a Labour voters too. And although Jeremy Corbyn has uh, made a speech on something that has intervened, uh, they still worry about the capacity of Labour to get its voters out. Yeah, although that's been partially... That's why Corbyn's intervention was so important, wasn't it? That's why that's put a slight spring in the step of Britain Stronger in Europe. Yes, it has. And they say that the argument in particular that resonates with Labour voters is that Tory Brexiters want to leave so that they can have a bonfire of workers' rights, um, support for Remain uh, significantly increases when that point is made to Labour voters in focus groups. Um, away from Europe, uh, Jeremy Corbyn has uh, changed his approach to PMQs. How did that work for him this week? The old politics is working a lot better for, for Jeremy Corbyn than the new politics did. So he's largely abandoned the crowdsourced questions. Um, he asks all six of his questions on, on the same subject uh, with more regularity now. This week he asked about forced academization, a policy which divides the Conservative Party and used what's always a good tactic for opposition leaders, which is to quote those on the Prime Minister's side who oppose him. So he quoted Graham Brady, the chair of the 1922 committee. He quoted Ken Baker, the former Tory education secretary. He quoted uh, a local councillor in David Cameron's constituency. And that's a that's a fairly traditional and obvious tactic, but it's what, not one that Jeremy Corbyn has used much or, or, or and has rarely used effectively. And this week he did. Um, David Cameron struggled to come up with a persuasive and succinct reply in defence of, of forced academisation. And his, his backbenchers were, were fairly muted. And it's his improved PMQ's performances, which I think it, it is one reason why Jeremy Corbyn's position currently looks stronger than it has and more secure than it has at any point since his election. And on that note, we'll be back next. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sweet. And now it's time for a segment called You Asked Us. Uh, Stephen, what have you been asked this week? What are the prospects? Well, what do we think of the prospects for a Liberal Democrat revival? Obviously, they're out of coalition, so they no longer have the taint of Nick Clegg. Uh, the Conservatives are having a fairly torrid time. Uh, Labour is uh, standing on a more left-wing prospectus than it has had at any election since 1983. So is there a chance for the third party to... I think the local election results will be fascinating on this because the traditional Lib Dem strategy was that you built up 
council level support and then you eventually kind of converted that into a few hotspots where you got an MP. So that'd be where they're looking to rebuild. I think there are a couple of problems though. The first is not, I mean, this is a very crude way of phrasing it. What's the point of the Liberal Democrat? What does a vote for the Liberal Democrats say about you at the moment in an area where it's a, you know, either a Lib Lab or a Con um, Lib marginal? There's no particularly liberal legislation that's really at the forefront of people's minds. I know there are things like the Snoopers Charter kind of coming back from the dead and stuff like that. Um, you know, there's no Iraq war, which was a massive driver of support for them under Charles Kennedy. And as for the idea that they're going to become the new sort of centrist party because Labour's moved decisively to the left, I still think that there are enough people who feel that they can recapture what they see as the Labour Party, you know, their Labour Party back, that they're not yet ready to abandon it. I mean, I so I'm I'm overall I'm 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 not loving them. I'm not loving their chances. Yeah, I mean, I think their chance. I agree with you. I think one um, we should never forget. And in 2010, there were people who did not vote Tory because they were worried about repossessions, which had happened in 1992. That is an awfully long time in the past. There were people in 1997 who did not vote Labour because they were worried about the closed shop, a policy which Labour had not only abandoned, but the person who has ab- abandoned it. Ashar Employment Secretary was their leader, Tony Blair. The the stench of coalition is going to take a long time to wash off. Um, but there was also a sense you voted Lib Dem because you wanted to feel good about yourself. I mean, I I'm someone who has voted Lib Dem, and <laughs> well, no, but no, but I, you know, well, it was over the Iraq War, and uh, and that was a thing that you you know you did it to show that you were sufficiently opposed to the Iraq War that you were going to back the only you know the left wing party that was against it. And that's not going to kind of happen again now. I think that the Labour Party offers much more exciting opportunities to look like you're a good person, if that's what you kind of want to do at the moment. Because it's not, you know, it's it's not talking about kind of brutal compromises with Paris. It's not talking about having to accept the benefits cap or having to accept cap on the immigration. You know, all those kind of compromises that made people feel a bit sort of reluctant about, about voting Labour. Yeah, I mean, I think that... The... The difficulty for the Lib Dems is actually that they did quite well at the 2015 election. Bear with me. Uh, if you are a centrist Liberal Party in coalition with the centre-right, 9-8%, that is a very good night for you. Uh, obviously, under first-past-the-post, it is a toxic, destructive night for you. Um, beforehand, yeah, the, the voters who I think sum up their problem are the Lib Dem to UKIP defectors. So they went to the, from the most liberal on immigration, most pro-European party, to the least liberal on immigration, least pro-European party. Why? Because there are some voters who do not want to be in office. And frankly, the market of parties which are not going to be in office anytime soon has got rather more crowded since the Lib Dems left it. Yeah. Yeah, their prospects for growth, I think, are not good. I think it's also reflective of how difficult it is as a minor party to just get your face out there. I mean, how much of Tim Farron have you seen? How many clips of Tim Farron have been on the 10 o'clock news since since the election? You know, Corbyn and John McDonnell have been out there a reasonable amount, often being, you know, brutally attacked, but they're kind of on the pitch. I think the big lesson for opposition parties is always, you know, you don't have things to announce, you don't have things to give away, you don't have decisions you make that will immediately impact people's lives. Therefore, it's quite hard to get anybody to listen to you. And and that's, you know, unless the Lib Dems can rebuild a kind of social media power base, that's going to be really quite tough for them just to get anybody to hear what now differentiates them from Labour, what differentiates them from the Conservatives. So on that gloomy note, um, thank you very much for asking us. You can ask us again by emailing us or by tweeting us at Stephen KB or at Helen Lewis. But that is all for now.
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, with Stephen Bush. Our producer is India Bork and our music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us on iTunes or at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.